0: But well, we're in a series, we're actually not just a series, it's a journey together. And so we're going to start with our signature scripture, which is in Matthew chapter 4, which is where Jesus encountered um, in this series four of his disciples. And, and, and he's calling them to follow him. So if we can put that up, Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. And Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee and saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. So they're at work. They're doing their regular job. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, they saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and in the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them immediately, and they left their boats, and their father, and they followed Him. So we're looking at Jesus' call to His disciples. And this is four of them, four out of the twelve that we know of. Now understand this, when the, in the Gospels it talks about disciples. There's different categories of disciples. These are His most immediate disciple. The word disciple just means a disciplined follower, someone that has committed themselves to follow the teaching of of another, and in that day, it was a rabbi that they would often follow, and there'd be somebody would say, I'm, I'm, I'm a follower of Rabbi so-and-so, another is a follower of Rabbi so-and-so, and they were called as disciples. And you had people at different levels of discipleship, different levels of their commitment to be a disciple, a disciplined follower of that rabbi. And so when the Bible uses the term disciple of Christ, it can mean anyone to anywhere from the, the immediate 12, to a, there's a group of 70 that Luke tells us about that followed him around regularly, and then there's a large crowd that is often called disciples in a very general sense. So understand that you have to kind of realize from the context, which type of disciple he's really talking about. Well, here he's talking about these disciples that are committed, ultimately committed followers of his. And we're looking at how he called them and their response, because what we're going to discover is he's called us also. And so from studying how he called them, what he called them to do, and how they responded, we can learn together what he's called us to do, and how we are to respond, because that's the journey that we're going on together. He's called us to follow Him. And I can't tell you where that is, and where that goes, because as we learned at the very beginning, He didn't tell them either. He just said, you, come follow me. And then they had a choice of how they responded. And the thing we looked at is the amazing thing, is they left everything immediately, and just followed Him. We see in this account with, with, with Peter and, and uh, Andrew and Peter, uh, they not, well, in both cases, they not only left their business, they left their family and followed Him. Now there's some evidence they had continuing contact with them, but they, they left their livelihood, they left everything immediately to follow Him. We looked in in, in Mark's account and we saw how uh, Jesus approached a tax collector, actually out collecting taxes, and He said the same thing to him. He said, you follow Me, and Levi, who then becomes Matthew, leaves everything immediately. And follow us, and we'll go, why would somebody do that? Why would somebody just leave everything and follow this man without any explanation? Because we saw Jesus was not calling them to form a movement with him. He was not calling them to join a church. He was not calling them to adopt a set of beliefs. He was calling them into a personal relationship with him to simply follow him. And we looked at that word follow and that means it's so simple it excludes everything else. All we have to do is know where he is and where he's going and go with him. And that's following Him. And it's so simple, it's so profound, and yet it's so difficult because we're so used to planning and thinking and doing all kinds of other things that get in our way of just following Him. And that doesn't mean we can't plan our lives, but we have to make room for simply His interruptions of, Come, follow me. And then we looked at, well, why would somebody do that? And we looked at, first of all, well, the authority of who it is that says, Follow me. that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. This was God standing in front of them, telling them, you follow me. So their response, first of all, was to the authority of who it was that was calling him. Then we saw that it's more than just the response to his authority, it's a response to his love. Because the one who is the Lord of all, the creator of the universe, loves them, loved them more than they could begin to love themselves. So it was also a response to his love for them. There was something about him that drew people to him. And we've seen that scripture where it says the sinners and the publicans would gather at his feet to listen to what he had to say. Why would they do that? We have trouble getting become to come to church when it's air-conditioned, sort of, in here, on a hot day. And yet they came in the middle of the hot day. They followed Him. They sat out in the wilderness where there was no food to hear Him speak. Why? Because Jesus communicated a love for them that did not judge them, but loved them and accepted them where they were, but gave them a hope that they would not have to stay where they were. The God loved them. The God of the ages who they'd been taught was a hard, austere God of the law. This God loved them. And then we saw the last time What else about this man that would cause them to leave everything? That this man that loved them was the one that God had designed for them to live. We sang a song about come to the water. Jesus uses water as an example when he talked to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 he says says, you've come here for that kind of natural water to satisfy your thirst during the day but if you knew who I was and asked of me I would give you living water water that would satisfy your innermost desires, your innermost Most need, and it would become to you a source of that water on the inside, springing up to satisfy. So, this Lord that's called us to follow Him is not only the Christ, the Son of God, He's not only the one that loves us more than anyone can ever possibly love us, but He's the only one that can satisfy the deep inner needs. A relationship with Him is the only one that can satisfy the deep inner needs and longings of your soul. And that's what we've looked at. Now, today, we're going to begin to look at. How do you answer that call? Because a call has to be answered. No answer is an answer to not pick up the phone. We're living in a day and age where there are all kinds of people that try to call us and have access to us, from your closest relatives and friends to those uh, those robocalls, I guess they call them, or the uh, telemarketers that are calling. And we have this wonderful technology now called Caller ID where you can see who's calling you. Of course, these telemarketers have gotten clever now. They'll pay for local numbers to call you where it looks like, well, that's my own exchange. I'm going to pick it up, and then you get this. I love it when I answer because they they don't look at your name ahead of time, and when you answer, they look at your name, and they don't know how to pronounce my name. Hello, Mr. And I know immediately it's a telemarketer. (laughs) So, but my point is this. We can look at it and say, I don't want to answer that call. But That's an answer. That's an answer to say, no. Every call automatically elicits some kind of answer. And Jesus is calling His disciples, and, and we're going to see either today or next week that, that some of them answer by saying no. And we'll see a little bit of that today. So we're going to begin to look at this answer and how they answered it, but how do, how is it answered generally? So to do that, we're going to look at some very difficult scriptures here today. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, there's some verses in here that troubled me because I didn't understand what they meant and how they applied. And we're going to discover these together. Now, you understand the context here of where Jesus is when he's writing this. He's just entered Jerusalem with his triumphant entry, which we celebrate on Palm Sunday. So the city is giving accolades. This is the Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and they're, they're crying out to him. And now Jesus is in this last week before his passion. And he's preparing them. And he, one of the ways he prepares them is by telling them a series of parables. Jesus, most of his teaching was in parables. And the reason he taught in parables, he explains with a parable, which is the parable of the sower, and that is Jesus did not force his teaching on anyone. He laid it out like a uh, a buffet of food. So that whoever whoever responded would get as much as they wanted. And he still works the same way today. So he would tell stories and interesting parables, and these were one of the reasons is they were very simple stories that contained very deep. Deep and profound spiritual truths, and Jesus did this because, in the story, people can relate to the to the story. They get involved in the story. In fact, our public, our our media does that. They're teaching you all the time, but they're doing it with movies. They're doing it with TV programs because we use our imagination and we get involved in it, and we don't realize that we're being taught things not by doctrine but by example. That pictures are getting planted in our mind and principles are getting sown into our mind. So you need to be very discerning of what you watch and where it's coming from because something's being sown in you. And not everything that says it's Christian is Christian. Not everything that is Christian is necessarily what you need to sow in your heart and in your mind. And so Jesus taught in parables because in a simple story that they could relate to, he would make a spiritual point that was powerful. And these stories were, were, were spoken in, in, a, in, a, in the cultural understanding of their day. So most of them are agricultural. Most of them have to do with sowing and reaping and principles that they were very much aware of because they operated in them every day. And so these are he's teaching them but but there's a series of parables here he's been sharing with them and the message of all of these parables is to get them ready to prepare them for something that is to come because God is a loving God he wants to prepare us a loving father will prepare his children for what it's like to go out into the world and so he he doesn't just want to make them feel safe and secure he wants them to be prepared and to be ready And and Jesus is doing that with these parables. So you need to understand that because the parable we're about to look at this morning sounds kind of difficult, but he's trying to awaken them and get them ready for something. That's the underlying story here. And so we'll begin with verse 1. We're going to go down through verse 14. I'm going to read down through it and then we'll explain it. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. So, when he calls them, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about being called. So, here's a group he called, he invited. That was the call. In this case, it was to a wedding, and they were not willing to come. And again, he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I prepared a dinner. My oxen, my fatted calf are killed. And in other words, the reception's all paid for, and it's ready. All things are done. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it. And went their ways, one to his own farm and another to his own business. In other words, they did not recognize the seriousness of the invitation. And the rest seized his servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. And when the king heard about it, he was furious. He sent out his armies and destroyed the murderers and burned up their city. And he said to the servants, "'The wedding's ready, but those who are her are not worthy.' Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. So those servants went into the highways, and they gathered together all whom they found. Look at this, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man standing there who did not have on a wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment and the man was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind him up, hand and foot, and take him away and cast him into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that sounds very severe. But look at verse 14. This is what we're going to talk about. For many are called, but few are chosen. So the thing we need to begin to look at now, we've looked at the call. The call but now we're looking at the response and Jesus is saying here although the call goes out to many only a few are chosen we don't like that because we want to think of God as arms are open to all to love and receive all and they are because many are called but few are chosen that used to trouble me Because I'm saying, why would somebody, why would a king call many and then only choose a few? That just doesn't sound fair. Well, therefore, I must not be understanding it. And What I've learned a long time ago is when I don't understand something, I go to the Holy Spirit who wrote the book and say, I don't understand it. And by the way, there's still things I don't understand. 41 years of walking with the Lord, there's still things I don't understand. I said, Lord, I don't understand this. And I'm not going to teach something I don't understand, so you need to give me some understanding of it. And I began, I felt, let you, all right, go back and read the context in which this is being written. The context is Jesus is talking about being ready for when He comes back. There will be a day of final judgment when, when... when what we've been called to do will stand in light of, of the judge of all mankind, of the men's hearts and men's intentions. And Jesus is telling them there, you need to be ready. There are other parables He gives of, this, of, the, of the virgins, the ten virgins that were wise and the ten that were foolish. The difference was the one that were wise were prepared and the ones that were foolish were not. It's not like it snuck up on them and they didn't know it was coming. They didn't take seriously the call and what the call meant. So let's go back and look at what can it mean that many are called, but few are chosen. And what do we need to learn from that? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> All right, let's go back to the beginning. Verse, verse 2. The, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Now, we could draw a parallel to that to what the Re- book of Revelation talks about, the marriage feast of the Lamb. When the, when the, when the, when the bride of Christ, which is the church, some people don't agree with that, but they can be wrong, the bride of Christ has this marriage feast with with its bra- with its bridegroom, which is Christ. And he sent servants out to call those who were invited to the wedding. Now, there's two levels of meeting here. What he's, he's addressing this to Jews. And so what he's directly referring to is when God created Israel which He did through Abraham and a nation God called this nation to be special to Him God wanted to display I don't have time to go into all the ramifications of this but why would God choose a special people? because God wanted to reveal to the world what He was like and the greatest way to reveal somebody and what they're like is through a relationship the best way to know what kind of a husband a man is, is to look at his wife and the relationship that they have. I know that can make you uncomfortable, but it's the truth. I don't have time to go, but First Corinthians 11 basically says that. I'll get, stuck. I'll get sidetracked here if I go on that, to teach that. Just trust me. God wanted to display what he was, he was like and God wanted to do that by having a relationship with a particular nation. So God didn't choose a nation. God formed a nation for himself. So he could start it from the beginning with a relationship and he chose a man, Abram. Called him to leave his country and his family and God entered into a covenant relationship with him and then after him through his son Isaac and after him through his son Jacob and then through the twelve the the, the twelve heads of the tribe of Israel. So God chose this people to be special to Himself, not because He wanted to exclude everybody else, because He wanted the world to know how generous and loving and kind God is by how He treated this nation. And that's why He placed them in Palestine, because at that time Palestine was the crossroads of trade between the East and the West. So the traders from the west would go into the riches of, of China and of the east and come back thinking they had seen the wealth of the world only to see how God, the head of the king of Israel, had blessed his people. That was God's plan. But Israel did not follow and did not obey. So God called them first. Now God sees the end from the beginning. So God knew what was going to happen. If you read through Romans 9, what happened is God presented His Son, the Messiah, to them first. John chapter 1, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. That's the Jews. They rejected the Messiah. And so God then takes the, the Messiah, and whom the Jews have rejected, and now God brings Him to the Gentiles, which most of us, where it's where we came from. But if you look at Romans 9, God's doing that to make the Jews jealous so that in the end they will receive the Messiah as they see God's relationship with Gentiles through the Messiah. So that's God's plan. So here the very first application here is that the people that were, had an invitation sent to them were the Jews. And notice their first response was, um, they were, but the verse, verse 3 says, He sent out servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, but they were not willing to come. They just didn't want, they weren't, they weren't willing. They, notice their will was involved. No. I don't want to come. Now there's a second level of calling here, and that's in our day and age to the world. So many are called, but many just say no. It was a beautiful day this morning, I got up, I was early, so I was, I was taking Molly for a walk, and I'm walking past people who are loading their car up to go to the beach, and loading, you know, they're, they're getting ready for their, their summer activities on this beautiful day, and, and it, you know, you've you got to be tempted not to judge them, because we're not called to do that, but to recognize it's because they don't understand what we understand, you're here today because you have a reverence for the God that created you. You're here, your presence here today is acknowledge that I am not the God of my own life, that God, my breath, my hope, my life comes from a God, and I have chosen on this beautiful day to come in and to spend this time together worshiping Him and acknowledge who He is. And they, you said yes today to that call. They said no, in many cases because they haven't heard yet. But they're saying no to the call. So it, it applies in that area. But it goes on to say in verse 4, and again he sent out servants saying, remind them, tell those who are invited, say, I prepared a dinner for you. My oxen, my fatted cattle are killed. They're ready to go. Now this refers to the Old Testament prophets. The God sent prophets to his people. God didn't just tell them through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God sent prophets to remind them, to correct them, to, 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 to draw them in, to plead with them. And not only did they reject the prophets, they killed them. And that's what he says here. But they made light of those and went their own ways, each to his own farm and to his own business. They didn't pay any attention to the rest, seized the servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious and sent out armies to destroy the murders and burn up their cities. And then he said to the servants, the wedding's ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Therefore go to the highways and as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. That's us. That's the Gentiles. So send the call out to another level of people. So the servants went out into the highways and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled. So that refers to those that have said yes. They've come in. They've spurred the word. They've responded to the call. Say yes. Yes, I want to answer that call. But now you have this troublesome one guy. Notice he called those that were good and bad. Those that were good and bad. I've heard people say, well, I really can't give my life to Christ. My life is a mess. Well, that's the one that needs to give your life. If you're going to take a bath to get clean, do you take a shower first so you're clean enough to get in the bathtub? You get in the bathtub because you're dirty. You come to Christ because you're dirty inside. And we all are. There is none righteous, no, not One. Our righteousness is but filthy rags, the Bible says. So the hall was filled with guests. Verse 11. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there, verse 11, who did not have on a wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, did you come in here without a wedding garment? And the friend was speechless. And this is strange. And the king said to his servants, Bind him up hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow, this is a touchy king. You talk about a dress code in church. <laughs> we went through this whole thing several years ago. It was okay for me to take my tie off. And there's still some people that aren't happy with it, and I understand that. But I got comfortable like this. I like this. So. But this is the ultimate He doesn't have the right clothes on. It wasn't that they said, no, you can't come to church. He has him bound and cast into utter darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's that all about? Well, sometimes you need to do a little research, a little study to find out what this is about. To do that, we have to understand the Eastern culture in those days. A wedding back then was not like our weddings today where... You know, it may be an hour or so, and there may be then a reception for a few hours, and then it's all over with. Very often, these weddings went on for a week or more. And people would come, and they would gather, and there would be a lot of preparation. There's a whole ritual that they went through about the, bringing the bride to present her to the bridegroom, which when we get into the parable of the ten virgins, you will we'll see more clearly. But one of the practices was you had to wear, there were certain clothes that were called wedding clothes. And from the research I've done, in most cases, the host would provide those clothes. Now there has to be something like that because everybody else that brought in here was just grabbed where they were and brought in. So they didn't have time to go and rent a tux. They didn't have time to go to their, you know, go to the, get their best, their wedding clothes cleaned up. Those clothes were provided for them when they came. So this wasn't just a man who came in and was casual and said, hey, you know, it's hot today, and I'm going to wear my cut-off jeans and my, my tank top, but I'm invited, so I've got a privilege. No, 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 this was somebody that refused to put on the wedding garments. Oh, that casted it in a different light. Because remember, what we're looking at now is answering the call, and we're looking at, the response of different groups of people when God has called them into a relationship with Him. So we see the Jews, first of all, said no. Some of them, when they were representatives, sent to them again to remind them, no, no, you're the ones that were invited. They just paid no heed to them because they were not interested. They were busy or going about the own affairs of life. It just didn't matter to them that they were called by the king to his son's wedding feast. And then he goes and calls the others that were not part of that covenant relationship. And most of them come, but there's this one man that comes, but he's going to come on his own terms. That's what we're going to look at. He doesn't like the fact that he's got to wear garments that the king has provided for him. Remember, the king's provided them. He doesn't like the fact that he's got to wear those. Maybe they're confining to him. Maybe, and we're going to see it possible reasons why thing about the wedding garments is they, ex- they expressed respect for the bride and the groom. They were chosen to be respectful, to be uh, a celebra- celebratory, to recognize the solemnity of the event, and, and they were chosen to be festive, and they were to be respectful for the, 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 the host, and respectful for the groom and for the bride, and to represent that this was a place of celebration, And they were given to them. Notice, they had good and bad coming. So even the bad people got wedding garments to put on that the king provided. Some of you are ahead of me already. The garments were provided for the guests. The king, now listen carefully. This is what's so important here. The king, the king decided what was required clothing to attend the wedding. The king decided what was appropriate clothing to attend the wedding. We're talking about how we answer the call. And what we're going to see, I'll give you a little clue. We're going to see you cannot answer it on your terms. I've said, I haven't said it in quite a while, but I've said many times when I give an altar call. The truth is narrow and it's exclusive. We live in an age where toleration is the byword. And I drive past churches all the time that said God's doors are open to everyone. And they are. That God's doors are open to everyone. Regardless of your race, creed, age, economic condition, regardless of your sexual orientation, God's doors are open to everyone. But God's truth never changes. God's truth about all those issues of today is narrow and it's exclusive. And every one of you that ever went to school understand that. Because one plus one is only one two. But I don't like the answer that is two. I used to have some of those debates with my math teacher. No, that answer was right. It's the one I came up with. No, I'm sorry, son. That's not the right answer. And so you failed this test. Because one and one can't be what I want it to be. It is truth. When I was in college, I was, never did well in math because I just had a mental block against it until I got to college, and, and everybody, everybody had to take one math course. And there was a course called new math. I like that idea because I didn't do well with the old math. Maybe the new math would be easier on me. <laughs> and I remember going through all that and thinking, well, they had new ways of approaching things, and that's great. And then the thought occurred to me, but I'll bet you when this new math professor has his salary calculated, he wants to use the old math. (laughs) How did I get off on that? Oh, okay. So, God's invitation is open to everybody. But the standard for answering it is established by Him and it never changes. I used to describe it this way. If, if suddenly we had a report, Alan come running in the back and said, the, the, the building's on fire and, and, and we have designated exits, and I'm, I say to you, all right, building's on fire, this is a fire exit, that's the only way out. And I get a lawyer arguing with me saying, I don't like the fact that there are many ways out of the building. Well you can try the other ways, but there's only one way that's going to get you out. But see. We won't argue with that because somewhere down inside we know we want to follow the truth. It's just we don't like to face truth because then we can't do what we want to do. And that's the real issue in our society today. The real issue underlying everything goes back to fallen human nature. We want to do what we want to do. And so the only way to deal with that is we have to get rid of God... Because God makes us uncomfortable, because a God that's out there means maybe someday I've got to stand in front of Him and give an account for what I wanted to do that I did, that He told me I shouldn't do, and I don't like that, so here's my way of dealing with it. God doesn't exist. We'll get Him out of school, we'll get Him out of society, but you can get Him out of all you want, but that doesn't stop God from existing. That means, all that means is you've chosen to deceive yourself. And there's going to be a day of awakening where you come face to face with the God you said didn't exist. it was an old special, I was a philosophy major, and one of the, I guess because I've been away, I'm rambling. Um, one of the, one of the uh, philosophers we had to study was Nietzsche. And Nietzsche was called a nihilist. You know, nothing. life's absurd, and I don't want to get into all that. But Nietzsche had this famous statement, God is dead. I've got news for Nietzsche. Nietzsche's dead, and God's still alive. (laughs) One moment after his heart stopped beating, Nietzsche faced the truth. And what a horror to face the truth when it's too late when it's too late so what we see here and what we're going to be dealing with is we cannot answer the call on our terms and what's represented by this one man who wanted to be at the wedding feast but he wanted to wear his own clothing is that that was not acceptable now let's look at the clothing and what does that mean what does he mean by this You have to wear the wedding garment that the king provides in order to be at the feast of the wedding. First of all, what does this mean? Well, what does it mean for us? There's a garment which Jesus has prescribed that we have to wear in order to be part of the kingdom of heaven. Over in the, uh, we're not going to turn there, but in the Sermon on the Mount, there's a, there's a verse near the end, and this is the verse that really awakened me to realizing that I needed to be I needed Jesus in my life. Jesus goes through these amazing examples of comparing the, the Old Testament law to what God really does require. The Old Testament law says, you know, you shall you you shall not be angry, you shall you shall not murder. But he says, but I say unto you, if you're just angry at your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. Whoa, that's raising it to a whole other standard. He talks about lust. He says, you know, the, the Bible says, you know, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that if you've looked at a woman to lust after her, you've already committed it in your heart. Woo. He says, you shall, not, you, know, you shall not swear by an oath. Because if you're swearing by an oath, that means that your word isn't any good let your yes be yes and your no be no and he finishes that he starts with saying your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees Then he finished, he said, he said for you must be holy as your father is holy and I looked at that because I, I looked at that and said whoa, whoa 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 wait a minute I think I'm a pretty good person but there's no way I'm going to think I'm anywhere near as holy as God and I kid you not the words out of my mouth was that I need somebody to save me and I heard my own words. Because I was a good person going to hell. I didn't lie most of the time. I was faithful to my wife. I was, I was an honest person pretty much. I was good compared to you. Some of you knew where you were going because you knew what you were like. But see, I looked at myself. I'm not like you. I'm better than you. (laughs) Filled with pride. Filled with pride. Until I saw God's standard. We have to be as holy as He is. Then what do we do? Well, God found an answer to that. 2 Corinthians 5.21 he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God and him this is the heart of the gospel God sent his only begotten son who knew no sin not just before he came here, through his 30 and a half, 33 and a half years, he, he perfectly obeyed the law. Everything you read in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus did perfectly. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, he did these things perfectly. So he knew no sin, and he took our sin upon himself. And then... the. With that sin upon himself, he went to that cross. And on that cross, God poured God's judgment for your sin and my sin out on his son. Because he'd taken our sin, actually it's sin itself, and put that on his son. Why did he do that? So God could then take his son's righteousness and put that robe of righteousness on you and on me we're going to see as we go forward it's a little more involved than that and it will, it will, it will really set you free as we go forward but that's, that's good enough for now but notice that we might he, notice what it does not say it does not say that we might become righteous because I thought I was righteous compared to most of you but that's not what he's talking about that we might become the righteousness of God. God took His own righteousness, once He paid for your sin, and put His own righteousness on you. Be ye holy as I am holy. There's no way you and I can do that ourselves. But He did it for you because the righteousness He gave you is His own righteousness. Therefore, today, right now, with the fight you had with your spouse on the way here, with how frustrated you got because you couldn't get your hair in the right place, for how mad you got at the kids, getting them ready to get here on time, for all the stuff you went through, you are still in the eyes of God as righteous as He Himself is. How can that be? Because there's two more words in the verse. That righteousness is yours and mine simply because we're in Him. And when you're in Him, you're one with Him, that means whatever He is, you are. I used this example several weeks ago. We were standing outside. If you stand on a hot day, you stand next to a swimming pool. The water in that pool is wet right that's one of the qualities this isn't hard there's no trick here one of the qualities of that water is it's wet and you're standing out and assuming you're not perspiring a lot you're dry but if you jump in that pool you're now wet why because you're in something that was wet so whatever that water is you are now if that water was filthy, dirty, and grimy like the Charles River, then you've become filthy, dirty, and grimy because what you got into was dirty, filthy, and grimy. But if you jump into a clean, crisp, pristine pool of spring water or, or well-filtered water, then whatever, however clean that water is, that's how you become. That's why you take a shower. If any man be in Christ. He's a new creation. The righteousness of God in Him because He is as righteous. And you have His righteousness because you're in Him. Now notice the king's talking about putting on the garment He's provided. So the first thing we see is the garment God has provided so that we can follow Him is we have to put on the garment of His righteousness. Now that requires us to do something that at first sounds so nice and easy until we face the reality of it. We have to humble ourselves and admit with all our good intentions, with all our efforts, you can never measure up to God's standard. The only way into the kingdom of heaven is to admit how rotten you really are, and that requires us to humble ourselves, remember the story in, in John thirteen where Peter is washes the, Peter where Jesus washes the disciples feet and and he, and he comes to peter and and, 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 he's, and, and he's, jesus is is doing the role of a servant we 've talked about this before i 'm not going to go through the background and he comes to peter and, and peter says me lord you 're going to wash my feet.' we have to understand that in the original Greek the, that it was written in what, what it says literally is you, my feet are washing so what Peter's saying there basically is no, 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 no we should be serving you and washing your feet because of who you are and Peter, Jesus says to Peter no unless you humble yourself and allow me to do for you what you can't do for yourself you have no part with me This is what keeps many people out of the kingdom of God. They're called, but they don't answer. Why? Because in order to answer the call, you have to give up your own self-image of how good you are or how bad you are. Because your standing before God as a Christian is not based on how good you are or how bad you are. It's based on the one that you're in. And this sounds so simple, but it's so profound and difficult because there's something in our fallen flesh that wants to take some credit for what we've done before God. And the proof of it is when you've had a lousy day and you lost your temper and you decide you're going to pray, how confident are you? Because who's your confidence in? You or the one you're in? It requires us to humble ourselves and to let go of our own merit before God, good or bad. Remember back, we've talked about this before in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve ate the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat. And and so their first reaction is they were afraid and they hid in the garden. And now what happens? God shows up. That's the accounting. There will be an accounting. God shows up and asks them, Where are they? He's asking for an accounting. How come you're not here where you used to be? Did you eat of the fruit? Yes. And so it says they were naked. They realized they were naked. They became aware of themselves and they sewed fig leaves together to cover their own right. nakedness. Through their own efforts, through, through harvesting a plant, leaves, they, sewed their, they made their own covering for their sin or nakedness. That's the first act of self-righteousness. That's an immediate reaction to the fall, to rebellion. They took it into their own hands. God shows up, and what does God do? He made a covering for them of the sacrifice of animals without the shedding of blood. There's no remission of sins. So God's covering that He provided for them cost the life of some animal just as the covering, the garment that God has provided for you and me cost the blood of His own Son on that cross. And we have to submit ourselves to receive that as a free gift for which we can take no responsibility or no blame because it's not about you or me, it's about how wonderful He is, which is why He gets all the glory. So the first thing this garment represents is we have to put on His righteousness. We have to humble ourselves and receive the free gift of His right standing before God. And that's not as easy as it may sound sitting here in church. Second thing it means, because we're in Christ, we're now to put Him on. What does that mean? Let's look at Galatians 3. Galatians 3, verse 26. For you are all, so he's talking to Christians here. You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's how you'll get in. For as many as of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Let's go to Romans 13. There are many others we could look at. Romans 13, verse 11. And do this knowing that at the the time, now is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. For the night is far spent and the day is at hand. Boy, if it was then, how much more is it now? Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness. So what he's saying here, Paul often approached it this way. He said, you have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. Now he's going to say, act like it. So putting on the garment not only means receiving the righteousness that Christ has paid for you, but now it means start acting like who you are in Christ. And that's what he's saying here. Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the day, not reveling in drunkenness, not in lewdness or lust, not in strife or in envy because you may say well I don't get drunk anymore or I'm not doing lewd and lustful things and not in strife are you in strife with anybody? is there anybody you haven't forgiven? is there anyone that when you hear their name that goes Ey! in your heart oh. is there anyone you want to make sure where they're sitting in church so you don't sit near them? Anyone whose name from the past just keeps coming to you and you know you should talk to them or write a letter, or get things straight, and you just don't want to do it, and maybe it's a relative. And envy. Envy. How did that person get that? Oh, especially Christians envying what's in the, what people in the world have. There's times I get up on a Sunday morning and I got a neighbor that's just got a new boat. And he's going to take that boat out in the water, and i got to come in here with you and me together. I'll look at him on that boat. Thou shalt not envy. <laughs> There's a psalm that said, he, I looked at the, at the, what is it, 77, 74? I looked at, the, I looked at the, the sinners that were prospering and getting away with everything. And how they were—they were—they were so happy, and everything was going well. And I'm struggling basically. Anybody ever feel that way? And he says. And then I came to the church, and I realized the end of their life, and I repented. So put on Christ. I've begun to do this. We'll talk more about this as we go further in the series. God has begun to deal with me about how I see people—not Christians—that well, even how I see some Christians. Because I I can have a critical attitude. I was raised in a family that was very critical. And so I can be very critical and look at people's shortcomings. and, and, And the problem with that is the other side of the criticism is what I think of myself. I'm better than they are. And that's pride. And the Lord's begun to teach me, I've called you to look at people through my eyes, not your eyes. If you're in me... You have to look at people the way I look at them. You can't look at them the way you think you can look at them. We're going to see as we go forward, all you got to give up to walk in Him, but all you get. Ah, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Okay. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Here's what I want to say. We've been looking over the last few weeks. At the beginning, there's there's a progression that goes on here in Jesus' calling them. And so there's a progression in His calling for us. It starts by just the invitation. Come, follow me. No terms, no explanation, no justification. I want to see if you'll follow me. Just come and follow me. But then as they continue to walk with Him, He began to show them what this requires. And the real purpose of today's message is to recognize that following Him is going to require something, which is why many are called, but few are chosen. Not because He eliminates them, but because they choose not to follow when they understand what following Him means. Now, I've shared with you the journey that we're on. I'm not that far down the road ahead of you, and maybe some of you are even ahead of me. Because I know this is where God's been calling me for over a year and I've been getting ready to begin to lead us in that same direction. So it's a process. I take comfort in this process. And I take comfort that the Holy Spirit is in us to help us because you won't follow somebody if you don't know them. You won't follow somebody if you don't know why to follow them, know who they are, know that you can trust them. And that's why we spent time just looking at this. So we don't need to be afraid going forward, but we need to recognize because we're living in an age of cheap grace. And grace is clearly biblical. Everything God does with us is out of grace. But we're living in an age where where there are many teachings out there because the the teaching in the body of Christ tends to go from one extreme to another. Like a pendulum... It tends to go over. And there was a number of years ago. There was there was a very legalistic. You had the holiness movement. Everything was based on how you dressed and how you. Of course, they talked all kinds of things. But if you look good on the outside, you were holy. You could be full of envy, strife, and jealousy on the inside. But if you look good on the outside, then you were holy. And then what we began to discover through the charismatic renewal and the teaching of the word of faith is we began to see how loving and kind God is and how gracious God is. And what's happened is the pendulum began to go to the other extreme and there's no fear of God anymore because God just loves us all and God is good and we sing God is good and He is and He does love us all but we've lost touch with who this God is that loves us all. We played that rap video a few weeks ago that I'm in. <laughs> For those of you who aren't here, I nah, don't forget. It, but it was about the privilege of worship. And if we recognize the privilege we have, we would come in here with a different attitude. Not legalistic, but with a different heart attitude. And so, so we, we're now over here where there's some people, because God is so good... And so loving, he would never really send anybody to hell. So the references in the Bible is just to kind of threaten us, but God would never actually do it. That's how far off teachings got in the body of Christ. And some of the most popular TV teachers have taken the message of grace, which is valid and real, and they've blown it up to be everything, to the exclusion of very clear things that Jesus taught. There is a cost to following Him. And if you don't know that, when it comes to pay, you won't pay it. And I have a responsibility before God because I will account for whether or not I've told you the truth. And I do this with fear and trembling. Whether I've told you the truth, I make sure that what I'm sharing with you is what God says in His Word, not my idea or somebody else's idea that I've read because this is what I'm going to have to give an account for. What you do with it will be your responsibility. But I want to share this with you, not to scare you, but to sober us up. I had one day on vacation where I just, I I I didn't decide to, I just fell into a pity party. Don't look at me like that. (laughs) You have too. And I was well deep down in it, wallowing around. And we sub called this. Is, oh, I wanted to mention this earlier. We called some people. My wife to people to pray. I need you to pray for us. I, I hesitate to do that until the Lord remind me of where Paul asked the people to pray for. Him. There's a spiritual battle that goes going on for this congregation, as it is with many congregations, and one of the targets of that will be the leaders. So I need you to pray. Please pray, because I'm not a tower of strength in myself. The strength I have comes from the Lord and from His Word. But when I kind of woke up of that, I went back to this teaching that I've been reading on and it jerked a slack out of me. It jerked a slack out of me. I'm going to stand before God. I want to be ready for that day. Not not as scared, but sober and alert and awake but the Holy Spirit's been given to us, this is what I was trying to get at, to help us along in this. He's at work in you. Philippians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who's in work in you, both to will, to want to, and to do His good pleasure. So God's at work in you. God's not calling us to do this, because He's planning for us to fail. So I've talked to a number of people. He's already at work. I can hear him working in people. So he's at work in you whether you feel it or not. So these are words of encouragement. But many are called. But the reality is not everybody answers the call. Not everybody says yes. And some say yes, we're going to look at later and turn back because the pressure gets too bad. And my responsibility is to help you be prepared so whenever the pressure comes, whatever comes, you're ready to stand against the pressure Amen. and to finish your course and to finish it with victory and for this church to finish its course and to finish it with victory because everything is at stake in that. That's why this church is here. This is why you're here, that we would do the will of God. Jesus said to, us, to, to those who were following, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the will of my Father? Many of you in that day will say, Lord, didn't we do these wonderful miracles for you? And I will say, depart from me because I did not know you. I didn't have a personal relationship with you, you who practice lawlessness, you who relate to me the way you want to and not the way that I've prescribed. Let's pray. Father, there are times your word is hard and there are times your word can even pierce us But your word tells us, above everything else, you are a loving Father. And because you love us, you will correct us, you will discipline us, you will challenge us, because you know what is to come. You know what you've called us to do. And only you can prepare us to truly follow you and to finish our course and to finish our race. And I pray, Father, for each one of us as we go through this journey together. That we will not be distracted, that we will not be discouraged, that we will not become afraid, that your spirit in us will embolden us and enable us, that we will see more and more how we need to be filled with your spirit every day, more and more, stronger and stronger, that Christ may dwell in us by faith that being rooted and grounded in love, we may come to know with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that passes understanding that we may be filled with all of your fullness. For there's much that you want to do. Prepare us, Father. Prepare us, Father. We're so weak often and we're so easily distracted. But strengthen us by your Spirit in our inner man. And I pray for each one of us this morning, Father, that whatever the Spirit of God may have touched in our hearts, that as we leave here today, we would not leave here of the same, but we would recognize and acknowledge His work in us. I pray for those, Father, that are here this morning and don't sense anything and maybe even not sure why they're here, that You would draw them, continue to draw them, and, and give them hope, Father, that You still love them, that You're not excluding anybody but the door is open to all the door is open to all the spirit and the bride say come come all you that are thirsty come and I will give you living water come unto me all you that are weary and are heavy laden take my yoke upon you and you learn of me for I am meek and I meek of heart my yoke is easy And my burden is light. Thank you for this grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe there's someone here this morning and